Hey guys, welcome back. This is Tom from the Progressive Mind Center podcast. Thanks as always for joining us. I have a special guest with me. This is my good friend, a vet, an ordained chaplain, a colleague, somebody that we went to school together, and I have him here today, and I'm very, very excited to have him, Mr. Michael Wright. So he's going to share some of his uh, um, thoughts and feelings and some of the things he's observed being out there in the field working with uh, guys and gals and and helping uh, primarily in the field of uh, addictions. Um, and so Michael's here today. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Tom. It's a really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. So we were talking before and we uh, um, were kind of bouncing some things, some ideas over uh, what we're going to have as a topic for today's show. And we're just going to kind of have a conversation about some things that we've observed, but um, some things you were sharing with me, just let's go ahead and let's just jump into it and uh, start sharing for our uh, for our community and for our folks listening. Sure, sure, for sure. So what kinds of things have you been observing? Um, and in, in particular, maybe even related to the stress being felt due to uh, the coronavirus and maybe even uh, protests that are happening and maybe just the political arena, not that we have to go too far into that, but um, as, as it relates to the people that you serve. Well, the population that I serve is primarily recovering addicts in different genres uh, of society, facets, facets, if you will. And so it's very significant, that question is because you observe an increased or elevated anxiety, as I see it, and they come in, and that's exacerbated, obviously, in the addiction world with something that they use to self-medicate with, i.e. heroin, uh, fentanyl. As you know, that's a that's pretty um, elevated in these in these days, and it's a nationwide um, cocaine things of this nature. So they come in there with that, and they're seeking answers. They don't always find. That's why they self medicate. So that's among the things that I observe. Something that's very preoccupying and worrying, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So have you seen an increase in uh, people abusing substances? Uh, and, and as it's related to the stress that's going on? I think it was there all the way, but what the stress does is it, is it exacerbates it to the point where, where they think that that type of escapism, albeit suedo, is something that they feel more comfortable than actually facing life on life's terms, if you know what I mean. And I have seen that, yes, to answer your question. And so we try and deal with it as best we can, but you must note that this has been ongoing for a lot of different reasons, too many of which we can get into now, but there's traumatic issues, there's childhood issues, there's PTSD, trauma, so on and so forth. And so, you know, as a psychotherapist like you are, like we both are, we see this happening. And then so there's a lot of solutions for it. But first, you have to get the person to realize that the path that they have chosen to go down, if you will, that is of addiction and and this and these things, you know, is something of self-destruction. It just takes a matter of time. You ever find yourself getting frustrated? <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, I, I what can I say? To me, the frustration comes when you try your best to do or to make the client understand that he doesn't have to live, he or she understand that he doesn't have to live that lifestyle. And then you find out that, that they can yes hit it F because they've done this several times in many cases and they really don't care about themselves. I have found, maybe you have too, 
that you can't want sobriety more than the client themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you can only work so hard, but we can't get inside of them. I guess if we could, we would do that. But then how would they learn? And mm -hmm. this is the frustrating point of if you have to pinpoint, it would be that because as I've said earlier, we kind of talked about this. I've seen six meet their demise that I can count since I've been in this field. And it's each one is a sad case from different ranges from 19 to 37 or 38. And so, and they're no longer on this earth because of the kind of things what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, think about it like um, this way. Imagine how much work it takes to be an addict, uh, to be an alcoholic, I mean, and to still be able to function and think about how you have to be cunning and baffling and smart. Um, equally as cunning as the disease is itself. So it's not that the person is incapable of having a better life or, or, or quitting or, you know, becoming sober. It's just that they, they are so smart that they can almost, they can manipulate themselves hmm. into thinking that there's really no other way that this is, and, and they don't realize how much of a slave they, be, they have become to their addiction and to whatever the substances are. Or they realize it, but they find frustration in getting out of that slavery, if you will, of addiction that they found themselves in. So I do agree with that. But why can't we turn that around and let them use that same energy towards their sobriety? That's what the I think all therapists nationwide try and do that, or at least have that in inclination to try and want to do that. Because you do have to spend a lot of energy to do that. I agree with you. You do have to understand that to get it over on your parents or your wife or your husband, you know, when put up a facade that everything's going right, when you know in your heart that it's not, it takes a lot of person to do it. Look at all that energy you're expending. So why not use at least half of that energy to understand that it's a fruitless road that you're going down to use it? Well, you know, we as vets, you're Marine, my Air Force and Army, and so we have to use energy for the right purpose in the defense of the country, the patriotism, all that stuff, you know. So we're kind of knowing on that. But I do know that I understand that it was a fruit produced, you know, the results that we saw in our soldiers or, or airmen or Marines or Coasties Coast or whatever. You had that and you were proud of that. At least I was, you know, when I was in training, the, the soldiers doing that. So it produced something here in contrast all that energy produces negativity. It produces broken hearts, burnt bridges, and on and on it can go. You know. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. I was kind of thinking, uh, and and this is how I relate to the clients that I have in the office when they have an addiction. Um, I say, you know what? It works, <laughs> and they're like, no, it doesn't work. It makes all this bad crap happen to me. You know. I said, no. You wouldn't do it if it didn't work. Yes, yes. And yes. this is the problem. This is the fundamental problem is because it, alcohol, drugs, whatever your poison is, it probably works better than anything else uh, that you time. could use at the time. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Until you start developing some more healthy, positive, you know, ways to kind of cope with whatever it is that you're coping with. But mm -hmm. it works. There's so many positives for you. At least your mind attaches to all these positive things, mm -hmm. your subconscious mind in particular, mm -hmm. your conscious mind is saying, oh, I don't like doing this. This is not making me feel good. Mm -hmm. I'm losing money. This is going to eventually kill me. I'm losing my family, my wife, my husband, my kids, you know, my, 
my house, whatever. Yes. yes. <clears throat> but the subconscious mind is saying, I like this. This changes how I feel. This mm-hmm. makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, and 88% of our motivations and desires is led by our subconscious mind, not our conscious mind. Mm-hmm. And when the conscious mind gets overloaded, it diverts right into the subconscious mind, which is where all of our comforts are, all of our knowns. Mm-hmm. So if we in our subconscious mind know that alcohol, for example, mm-hmm. is going to help relieve my stress and anxiety, mm-hmm. it's going to instantly change how I feel mm-hmm. or drugs, what it fill in the blank, mm-hmm. then, uh, in the morning, it's easy to be sober, mm-hmm. but at 1130 at night, mm. not as easy. Well, you see that. You know, it's interesting because it's the chemical release of the dopamine at a certain instance that is uh, produced by the drugs, depending on which one drug you're taking to do it. And then, so it's an instantaneous, at least a very quick response chemically that they say is their high. And because of that, you know, you study the mind, the, the, the frontal lobe and all of these things that we do, then you'll see what it happens. And and they want to, well, when we bring them back, if you will, not that we do, when they finally realize that pretty much what you said is true, that there there is a high to it. But when we talk with them and they see that, now that same release of that chemical element of it comes naturally. And that takes a while. That's where the anxiety comes in, irritableness downright anger outbursts, which we've witnessed before, throwing chairs, smashing things, having to pull a a button to have someone come in to help them because of this is not easy. So what they've done is they've accustomed their bodies to getting instant releases. And then after that, they're always chasing the high, whether Mm -hmm. it's in heroin or cocaine or, you know, keep it up. And, you know, alcohol is a depressant, as you know. So they'll do that. And you ask them why, and they're not really sure. But the the stories of, of of just destroyed lives are uh, more than we can we can say at this point, but that's what it is, and so it's bringing them back from that precipice, if you will, and letting them understand that your body will reduce these things. And if you're a Type A personality, for instance, you can still be a Type A personality, but do it in a positive way. You know, I told one guy today, he says, I don't mean to go on and on about it, but. That's all good, man. I I told one guy today, I says, listen, uh, but, and he was telling his father, this particular person is is, uh, in his 20s. And I said, you know, he was saying to his father, he said, I just like the rush. You don't understand. It's not all that. I said, the rush I get. And his father responded, the rush, forget it. What, we're trying to run from the law to do these things? <laughs> what, what is rush that you're talking about? And he, he couldn't say, I says, well, if that's the case, and you come with me. Next time we're up at 12,000, you bail out with me. You talk about a rush, you're going to get one. And yeah. his father laughed at that because he, he could relate to that. And the kid never really thought about that before. I says, you can get it in a lot of different ways. It just doesn't have to be destructive, is my point. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, what kind of interventions uh, are you currently using that you found to be effective for helping to treat? Well, the old standard for the alcohol, obviously, is the CBT. You know, I like uh, solution-focused brief therapy. Um, that seemed to be effective. You, you have uh, Adlerian theories and, and sundry theories that you can be eclectic when you're dealing with different clients. But for the most part, I take it on an individual basis. I also have the the thought that since each individual is different, I use a, a little portion of all of that that works. But there's are are those there's uh, DBT, 
of course, there's also uh, the possibility of, and we have other co colleagues that do this better than I do, um, the, the mind where they take him uh, to uh, relax in a, a certain format mm -hmm. and they do that. So there's a, there's a lot of um, available things that we can do or um, how would you say, just ways we can actually uh, help them. Those are the theories yeah. that, I mean, those are the um, methods that we use for the most part to do that, but we're not limited to that. So you found that being an eclectic type of therapist, utilizing cognitive behavioral therapy, solution-focused brief therapy, uh, dialectic behavioral therapy, and some mindfulness relaxation, mm -hmm. and others you had mentioned, uh, you know, an Adlerian approach and looking at family systems and mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think you were kind of uh, uh, alluding to the fact that maybe it's specific to the client that uh, or the patient mm -hmm. or whatever is going to work with them, whatever they're going to glom onto, mm -hmm. and you may begin using like motivational interviewing and just kind of see where they're at and then kind of go from there, see what, what makes sense to them. And you can kind of hand pick or hand pick your modality that's mm -hmm. going to work. Mm -hmm. And now be, um, before we, you know, started rolling, I know you, you had talked that, you know, as a chaplain, you uh, bring faith and spirituality and things like that into it. Mm -hmm. So I was just curious on how you utilize that to help um, people with addictions and, and how that has been successful. Thank you for asking. And, and yes, motivation interviewing, which I, I didn't mention, but of course that's almost one of the, the staples along with the others that we use as we begin to. But with regards to the spirituality portion of it, I find that the majority of that comes, whether it's CA, NA, um, um, AA, or AAA, no, just kidding. <laughs> but I find that, you know, They'll come in there and they'll need that. Well, you know that uh, Bill in back in 1935 and then 39 mm -hmm. was alluding to the 12 steps. I think that that was a bleed over from um, some type of spiritual experience that he had. I'm just summarizing briefly uh, what seemed to be the case. And so he tried to incorporate that in those 12 steps. I find that they know that very well. What I find, though, and I can bring in the spiritual portion is that uh, they're looking for something above and beyond themselves because they have tried it themselves and it doesn't work. That's where my gospel training and as a ordained chaplain who's gone into the prisons and the jails for many, many years now, over 20, I find that it brings comfort and relief to the stress factor of the fact that their frustration and they're like in a revolving door syndrome, if you will. Mm -hmm. When I talk about God and how he personalizes his relationship with the person and how they've tried and failed through different means, whether it's drugs, sex, etc., and it's and they still feel the void of frustration. I find I say, well, why not give God a, a chance? Not, why not give Jesus a chance and see if that works? And a lot of them, from their childhood training uh, or whatever they, the experience that they have, they return to that, and I've seen good success stories because of that. Oh, nice. So I, I think um, just the work that you do uh, with addictions and with psychotherapy, it, you're, you're seeing the same kind of volume. You're doing the same type of work, regardless of what's going on in the world right now or what's going on in our country. It's, you, you're still sort of fighting the good fight, I guess. Well, yeah, but it's a never-ending fight. And as you know, that you can get tired at times, but you have to see what your own motivation is to do it. I find that self-care 
is an anomaly for many of therapists because they well-intentioned as they may be don't do it and i find that, that self-care what's that no, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> that, that burnout factor my right. goodness compassion fatigue yeah, yeah that they do that and you know you're you're all <laughs> gun hole when you get out there you know like how we were when we graduated and uh and the thing like that and you want to do the right thing but nobody knows it's not written in the book per se how it's supposed to go you never know you have to go and, and make your own path and that's what we've done but i find that that is something that you know has to be at the forefront of what we do because if you don't if you're empty yourself you can't give to others mm -hmm. and so that's why you have to do it so you have to balance everything with the onset you mentioned that early of the COVID 19 and this unexpected results that you have people are on edge you know um and they're they get not they're in the houses house all the time so they get um antsy and they want yeah. to go out and do things um, they don't like the infringement of what they perceive to be the government mandates in their lives. And yet for the safety of their own families and, and the society and the neighborhood and the society in general, they try and do that. Most folks will con conform to that. Yeah. And, and that's coming into our addiction. I'm sure you've seen that to the point too. Then you have the protests, as you mentioned earlier and things like that, which is of, of recent, but it's been simmering for a long time. So all of these factors you have to deal with as you go through that. And they need therapists like ourselves, you know, social workers, licensed social workers like yourself are very much in need. And um, this is something that I think is a blessing in any neighborhood or society if it's used correctly. Yeah. So, yeah, I was just wondering if you if there's been an increase because people are being, you know, quarantined or, or sort of encouraged to stay home to limit uh, the exposure. Mm -hmm. Um, and to wear masks and thing like things like that. And our podcast I had before, we we're kind of being real and talking about you know the the masks and uh, you know um, sort of our civil rights or our civil liberties potentially being affected. And not that the mask or being told to wear a mask is, was a huge thing, but it, it's sort of like, well, if we let that slide, then what what comes next, next after that? that yeah. So we're just wondering, people being at home, I mean, you know, if you are new in sobriety and, you know, you've got maybe, what, six months or a year under your belt, you're going to meetings and then suddenly this virus comes up, you're not allowed, you can't oh, go to goodness. meetings. Maybe you can do some stuff online, but it's not the same. No, it's not. Maybe you can talk on the phone, but then you're faced with, I'm bored, <laughs> I'm scared, mm -hmm. I'm stressed, well, and... You go to those things that work. Remember, like we were talking, yes, drugs right. and alcohol. They work. They help reduce that stress and anxiety. So I was just wondering about, you know, go ahead. You had a thought. Albeit temporarily. They, they never work, but in the interim, they work. And exactly how you said it. So, you know, they, they get antsy. They want to get. They don't like the quarantine. But at the same time, and they default. I can't tell you. And I'm, I'm, it's, I have to say this. The recovery rate in addiction is abysmal. It, it just, there's no other way to say it. To it's begin abysmal. with. Yeah, to begin no matter, yeah. with. It's abysmal. If you get 22 to 25%, that's stretching it. Mm -hmm. And I see this constantly. They come back. And mind you, these clients, and I, I guess I could say nationwide, but I know um, regionally wide, say yeah, they say the right things they're going to do. It, and I believe that they have every good intention to do it. But it's a compulsive behavior time. Yeah. And they don't take that in consideration. So if it's psychological, it has to be attacked and, and destabilized psychologically. 
I, I believe that because it's coming because where do they get the inner strength for a person to stand up in 15 years clean, say he's been clean or she's been clean 15, 20 years. And all of the people that are listening to him admire him and their mouths open. They're saying, well, how did he do that? Or how did she do that? And they tell their stories of tragedy and triumph, mm-hmm. but it's all through the change in the transformation, the metamorphosis, if you will, of the mind and the psyche to realize that you can do this and you don't have to go back into bondage bondage of whatever type of addiction that you happen to have. So when you come to something like the being quarantined and, you know, they get, they, they get, you know, they, they're just want to get out and do something like that. And since they can't, because they don't want to get in trouble with the law, they default to that. I think every week we have at least maybe three or four people that come back that said they never would. I, I have I have had at least, and they're not my particular clients, but I know that they've that they've uh, been Narcan, you know, yeah. because of their their addiction, and and I asked um, them a lot of times, do you have a death wish? And <laughs> right. of course, they, yeah. and and they deny it, <laughs> yeah. and yet yet indirectly they affirm that they do, mm-hmm. because they say answers such as, I just I just do it impulsively. I don't think about what I'm doing when I do it. I said, but I, I counter with it. Isn't that kind of dangerous? Because in one of these things or episodes, when you do that, the EMT might not get there in time or whoever, and you might not come right, back. Right, you so, might not come back. So isn't that suicidal ideation? And they don't sell me, they don't <clears throat> deny it. So <clears throat> you have that type of tactic that's going on. Well, you know, like um, for those uh, folks who go into treatment, you know, in the treatment environment, of course, it's set up to be healing and therapeutic and maybe even to dig or poke and prod uh, at some of your uh, insecurities or some of your issues, but also you're surrounded by people that, you know, have similar issues. You work together, you know, um, you have therapists, you have psychiatrists or doctors, you know, you've got a a whole cadre Mm -hmm. treatment team available to you. You have activities to do. Of Mm -hmm. course, your substances are not there, although I know there are treatment centers where they sneak or figure out a way to get something. Yeah, but, I mean, for the most part, you, uh, you're clean off of it and there's not a, a huge temptation. Um, but then you're released <laughs> and you feel great. You feel good. You're stoked. You're motivated. I'm going to take this on. And you go out back to the regular world, mm-hmm. <laughs> back to all of your triggers again, back to your families, back to mm-hmm. the daily grind, back to pushing the boulder up the hill. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think where you were talking about really the recidivism rate and how that's so low mm-hmm. or higher, however you say that, I don't know, but mm-hmm. people are not maintaining uh, uh, sobriety uh, no, post-treatment. So. I mean, I would be a liar if I said it was. I look. I wish I could be more optimistic about it. And, um, and I do say that, um, with, with, you know, a heavy heart, but I do know that when I see them coming back, my concern is that one of these times they won't come back. So yes, recidivism rate, I saw it. And when I go to the prisons, but that's different because that's a different genre altogether. We're talking about the addicts and the free will. We try and prepare them about two to three weeks before they go out saying, this is nothing but a foundation that you and I are trying to build mm-hmm. to yeah. the end that you can have enough to build upon it when you go out there back in the real world. Cause that's what they call it, quote unquote, the real world. And I understand what they mean you do too. But the thing is, is that that's the world that you left. So if you're in a gutted 
gutter, you are couch surfing, you're homeless. And you're, you're trying to tell me that you don't want to go back to that because of you, the way you steal or stole or, or took money or whatever it is that you did in order to get your drugs, your crack cocaine, whatever you were doing, and you don't want to do that anymore then that means to say that you have to make that your motivation to turn this around. Because quite honestly, we as psychotherapists don't have the answers. The mm -hmm. clients themselves have the answers. They have to pull it out of them, though. They don't believe they're doing it. They self-abase. They've got great remorse, regret, guilt, shame, and on and on it goes. And so mm -hmm. when you get them, that's what you get. You got a person, girl or, or male or female, that's looking down, won't even look in the eyes, shamed of what they did. They, she might have, or he, might have prostituted themselves or whatever in order to get that. That shows you the power of whatever is that substance that you've been using. Yeah. It does. You know, and so we've got to try and bring them back in amount of time. And imagine trying doing that in just 30 days. You know, it's right. it's yeah. and so we don't make any pretenses about it. We say, this is just a foundation we're building. It's not a magic pill. Here's another thought. Um and the people you were speaking about. Uh, almost like the severe, most severe cases, you know, when you think about somebody who is uh, um, uh, somebody shooting up in an alley behind a dumpster, mm -hmm. you know, that's somebody needs to help them. They need some serious help. They need recovery. They mm -hmm. need, you know, um, spirituality or, or faith or, or a meetings or all the above sure. and they need detox and they need where they're, you know, they're out there, prostituting themselves to make money or they're stealing and you know that but we can identify that person is indeed an addict and they need serious help mm -hmm. but what about the person who you know drinks daily mm -hmm. and still has a job mm -hmm. still has a family mm -hmm. the family's not doing well but they look at these other people and they're like yeah those people need help i don't really need help <laughs> you know like i don't link myself with that so mm -hmm. they uh, they haven't hit rock bottom. I guess that's another they, term that we throw around in addictions. Haven't hit rock bottom, but um, you don't have to wait until you get to that level of being in the alley and prostituting yourself or, you know, just wondering when your next fix is going to come or how you're going to get it or being in a trap house or, you know, mm -hmm. doing things you wouldn't uh, necessarily no, want to do. Well, you hit it on the head. The thing is, is that when I get that type of client, the it becomes that much more tougher because they have used that energy as we alluded to earlier to do everything that a society expects them to do the problem is that materialistically they may be doing well but emotionally they're doing horrible and it's hard for him or her to admit that i'll give you a, a general for instance there was this guy who had a high school education and he came to me and he came to me because they dropped off, not where I'm working currently, but they dropped him off literally and the van pushed him out of the van. He was a CEO. He had at least 50 employees under him. <laughs> <laughs> they came out there, they deceived him because they had him. They black bagged him and kicked <laughs> <laughs> him. They pushed the guy out. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> you know, so he was mad at first that they did that because they told him it was going to put a ruse and they told him it was going to be another thing. It wasn't. Mm -hmm. They did out of concern the fact that seeing him as a, a CEO over this company, he was going on a path that he couldn't return to. I, I, his wife happened to speak Spanish and I speak Spanish. So I told, told, talked with her and she told me what her concern was. So when I got him there, he said that everywhere I go, whether it's Japan or China or Thailand, 
they love their their liquor, uh, their hardcore drinks. And it, mm -hmm. it's an offense to them if you don't take it. So, you know, I always have been so used to and wine is what gets me. That's what his was, was wine. Yeah. So within 30 days, we had to try and deal with that dynamics that he's doing good. He's meeting all this. He's had a beautiful home. Of course, you can imagine if you got 50 employees, he's doing well, you know, and he was doing that, but that was his problem. But you know what? The interesting thing about that is that after the end of the, and I'm not saying that 30 days is a magic of 45 or 60. That's a, that's a myth. That's not true. But what I'm saying at the end of, there was an enlightenment, if you will, in him. There was an awareness that he hadn't before. And he absolutely was disgusted at the behaviors that he exemplified for his family and everything, being a man of over 50, he was doing that. So I guess the silver lining of that was that he was so excited at that time for it, that there was another person in the treatment center with him who was struggling, a younger fellow, about from 27 or so, younger fellow. And he said, if you'll do kind of what I did and show that you're sincere about this recovery, he was moving, I can say this from Louisiana, but he was going to go back and get his truck and come down. And he offered him a job and that, and he said, I'll give you a job. And it paid a lot more than what he did. You know, that young man did that and he kept his word, that CEO. And he went to the place and he went down there. So there's a like a silver lining, if you will, of a lot of these stories. You don't see it very often, but he was doing that. So it can be done. But those are the hardest type that you think. I've had a CEO. That means that on Wall Street, he was the boss of those that are screaming and yelling on Wall Street. I kid you not. I had him. He came to me three times. So this is general, nobody knows. Buy, but, sell, buy, sell. <laughs> well, he was their boss. He was the one <laughs> yeah. that, and he had a problem. So yeah. yeah, and it's hard to do that. So that's a hard nut to crack, but it can be cracked. Well, I have uh, a couple other questions for you. Um, and maybe this isn't the right wording, but like what are maybe some keystones or some tenants for those who are in recovery? Some things that if, if you do these things, mm -hmm. Or if you watch out for these things, you'll have success in recovery. Excellent question. So I would start with one by inner conviction. I would say that would be one that they have inner conviction that the path that they're going down, if you will, just a phraseology, is not the path that's going to lead to anything conducive to what they themselves say they desire. So it's got to be that inner conviction. Two, motivation. So I say, what is your external motivation and what is your internal motivation? I've had responses like my wife, uh, my dog, my family, my daughter, so on and so forth. That's external. I say, what about internal? You know what they tell me? Fear of death. I'm going to wind up a, uh, forever a crackhead in some alley, like you said, that will never get out of that. That, that terrifies me. They brought themselves down to those depths where it's just, they say fear of death. Then all of them say um, uh, not suicidality, but they they say the fact that I, I want to prove to myself that I can be a decent and productive member of society. That's mm -hmm. another motivation. So two is motivation. Three, the thing to watch out for is complacency. Because in more than 85% of the cases that I can recall, they were doing well. And that's not just limited to the addictive field. You can go expand that to any type of field and pretty much collectively, it would be said that complacency 
breeds the um, the things that come after that because you stop doing what has worked for so long. Yeah. So I would be careful that they don't allow complacency to deviate them from their short or long term goals that they've established. If that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. You know. And I guess thing the last thing that I would say is vigilance. Vigilance over your process, whatever process that you've chosen to do that, be vigilant about it and have outside or external objectivity. In other words, accountability from someone else, whether it's AANA, your permanent sponsor, your home group, your wife, your uncle, you know, your celebrate recovery, that's the Christian track and your pastor, whoever it might be, your imam or your, your um, rabbi, whoever it might be, have that external accountability so you can go on and continue to be strong. I was also thinking, uh, how about for the loved ones, friends, family members of those of an alcoholic or an addict, whether they've identified as being that way or not, Mm -hmm. uh, what are some things, uh, some ways that you could educate or some things that they can do themselves uh, to help? I would say be aware of the signs of relapse relapse for your loved one. Now, here's a dynamic that you may not have thought about. You you say that and it can work. But what do you understand total sobriety to mean? Well, for most folks, it means just that. They can't touch that substance anymore forever. Now, you can say that to a 60-year-old man and he might understand that. You can't say that to a 20-year-old kid and expect him to take you seriously. What? Are you kidding me? I can't have another beer? No way, man. You're out of your mind. Right. And so the family members of this person, if they go back to a, an environment where even though they have been cleaned, the loved ones in that family aren't willing to stop, that's where the dilemma comes in. And we see that all the time, Tom. And so what? it's a dynamic where they can't move geographically because financially it's impossible. So all they have to do is rely on people that can give them the understanding. And oftentimes it's not the family, unfortunately, um, because those are the ones that exacerbate. Or if you have a problem where there was childhood or adolescence um, tra- tra- trauma going on, PTSD, et cetera, and uh, they have been the, the exacerbators or at least the catalyst of it, they don't want to go back home. Yeah. Now I'm putting the worst case scenarios out there. But you have these lovely, lovely family members that have been there for them through thick and thin having their goods stolen or whatever, and they're still sticking by them. We have to psychotherapists instill in them the fact that you cannot continue to to depreciate these people who have been there for you because you'll turn around one day and they won't be there because they're just tired of it. They can't stand it anymore. You've heard of tough love, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I've seen that in, in, in mothers and fathers when they leave them in jail. And they don't come back and do that. And I've seen the opposite. I've seen horrible enabling parents that just go and rescue little Johnny or little Susie whenever they do. And you know what that does for them, uh, Tom? It it leads the path to their eventual destruction. And I've seen that in real time, you know. And so hopefully this answers your question. But those family members can be aware of the signs of relapse. That's what I tell them all the time. Know what to do and be and make them accountable, especially if they're coming under your your roof to live. You know, it's not that you're going to be a Gestapo, if you will, but you've got to make them accountable to the fact that this is their life. 
and you're included and wittingly or unwittingly in that life. And so if you keep them kind of focused on what they have to do for their short and long term goals, that's where families can kind of, of course, love and compassion, but they've been doing that for years and it hadn't worked yeah. because addicts are manipulators, you know, and they, and they'll tell you that themselves. No, I know what manipulate. I know what to say. Mm -hmm. I will do that. So families yeah. oftentimes aren't the best. It's gotta be an objective person that could let them know and give them accountability and call them out on their stuff, as they say, yeah. <laughs> in recovery. And, and just not have no no hairs in the, the tongue, as we say, pelo en la lengua, uh, to do that and, uh, and understand that that works best for families. So I guess uh, having a sponsor is kind of an important thing, somebody that can hold you accountable That's for right. your stuff, <laughs> where the family members may not be able to see it or they may be prone to being manipulated. That's right. You know. That's right. Um, and you talked about enabling behaviors and we know that the family is not purposely trying to enable them to continue those behaviors, mm -hmm. but they're doing it out of love, out of compassion, out of concern. I concern. I want to make sure that my, you know, family member, my child, whatever has everything that they need so that they can succeed. Mm -hmm. And they do this again and again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And yet it's providing the opposite effect. Exactly. You know? Exactly. That's why the, a beautiful 19-year-old kid is no longer on this earth. Um, just speaking in general terms, she was from New England. And it's a sad case. And and um, her dad, I guess, because this, watch this, five times a week, uh, five or well, no, actually five times a day sometimes, she would change her dress while she was in treatment and recovery. And she'd say, Michael, how do I look now? And I just kind of fake a, 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 like a, like I had a camera, you know, and she'd smile. And so, and she wasn't my, 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 my client, but she'd do that. So that spoke to me of a mental health issue that she had, low self-esteem, wanting to call attention to yourself. That's something that has nothing to do with the drugs. But what it is, is when you have an altered state of mind, whatever that drugs that you're ingesting makes you that much bolder or extroverted if you were introverted. Right. And that's what happens. And that happened. So she was used to manipulating a little daddy because that's daddy's little girl, gorgeous girl. You know, I have to say that, you know, but she did that. And so when, what happened was uh, she asked for a t one way ticket home one more time. Daddy granted that. And I guess uh, she was going to take a side trip before she got home. And unfortunately that tried side trip, uh, was her demise. Oh. She, she had, so you can imagine that the broken heart of that father will have to live with this the rest of his life yeah. for being manipulated and the daughter who manipulated her him as well to do that. I can't imagine. I wouldn't wish that on any parent. But those are some of the sad stories that we go through and we, we hear. And not only me, probably you get a thousand from different therapists of, of more tragic stories like that of the insidiousness of the behaviors that happen as a result of the addiction, you know, and yeah. enabling the, the mom doesn't want to, but they don't, it's, it's my baby. It's this one. I understand that, but yeah. you have to go with tough love. Now I'll say this and shut up. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with, with, in my generation, I have to be, you know, you, you wouldn't have got weight. Have, if you smoked marijuana and, and don't lie, you know, everybody tried it. So everybody tried it, but um, it was curious <laughs> about that. But you couldn't do experiment like that. Experiment it, you know. I mean, if they're honest, you know. Or let's say most, not everybody, but most. Um, 
but so some people, uh, if you if you, you you watch the film, the video pleasure pleasure unwoven, um, he he speaks about that the pre genetic disposition and how you can't get away from that. It's a very popular film among AA, but for me, I'm just thinking it just comes around down to choices. Now, when you're young, you don't know choices. So if daddy sets you on a pedestal and gives you spiked eggnog during Christmas <laughs> and everybody's laughing, ha ha, look at that little Johnny. Mm-hmm. You don't know what's going on. Yeah. But you've opened up the, the door for him to at seven years old, try it again. And then nine. Mm-hmm. So you've done that. And it could have been a family of five. Johnny and maybe Susie out of other three kids are the only one that like it. But now mm-hmm. they've become you've opened up, you've made that seed for them happen so that they can continue down that path. You understand what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That happens. And so how do you pull them back from that? We see them 30, 40 years later, yeah. very regretful of the past. Day. But they have sisters and brothers that never touched it. Up. They don't like it. Mm-hmm. And you see what happens. So you have that dynamic to happen. Yeah. Uh, what are some final thoughts that you want to share with the, uh, uh, the audience? Well, I'm very grateful that they tuned in and listened to you. I hope that the audience goes. And I'm very grateful to be with Tom, who's my dear friend. And I respect him a lot. I would just say that for the audience, that if you happen to be in that type of situation where you have addicts or or you're you're dealing with recovering addicts, must be aware of what we said earlier, that you can be a help to them if you recognize the signs of their recovery and the signs of their relapse. And you you don't want to coddle them. You don't want to make them flee, but you do have to establish boundaries, especially if uh, these young people are maybe not so young or living with you, or even if they're not, your brother, your uncle, your aunt, your sister, your, your grandfather. We've had those too. You know, you have to say these things because I think it's critical given our society and not only the pandemic with the coronavirus, but before that fentanyl, heroin, all, heroin excuse me, and all of the other drugs that come along because they're phases and they're fads that are killing our young people and not so young. I would say that for, first of all, Promote healthiness, happiness, uh, enjoyment with life itself, you know, without the use or intervention of drugs. I mean, that they can face life on life's terms. You do it every day. I think they deserve a chance to do that sometimes, but oftentimes because of they're ostracized and they feel shame and guilt, like we mentioned earlier, they don't know to do that. So I would tell the audience that's listening, if you are sober, if you love your sobriety, you share it by being example, which I'm sure you are, many of you are already. But if you have a loved one that's in that type of situation, you just help him by recognizing uh, that she and he can continue in their recovery with that emotional help. And hopefully it'll work out for you. I certainly pray that it does. Well said. Michael, thank you for being here. It's always a good uh, time when you come around. It's always good to see you. Thanks for taking yes. time out of your busy schedule, time away from family and uh, to come and, and uh, speak with our audience and uh, to kind of help out. If you uh, enjoy the podcast, please feel free to subscribe and leave a review. Uh, subscribing and enables you to uh, be open to receive uh, notifications when there's a new episode out. And uh, we hope that you guys leave some good reviews so it helps us grow and improve. And if there's anything in particular that you'd like to uh, hear about or or have us discuss, please uh, drop that in the reviews as well. So as always, uh, a pleasure, you guys. Thanks so much. Take care. And we'll look forward to seeing you for the next one. God bless.